Let's pray together. As we go to prayer, I just want to return to the words that were read for us a couple of minutes ago in Psalm 29 because they're just a perfect uh, companion to what we just sang, but in an unusual sort of way. Again, Psalm 29, David said this, that the voice of the Lord is upon the waters and the glory of God thunders. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. It shakes the wilderness, strips the forest bare, and everything in his temple says glory. And Father, mystery of mysteries is that that incredible, awesome, indescribable voice of yours is the one that we just invited in song to speak to us. And Father, the only reason that's possible is because of what we did a little bit earlier than that, what we were reminded of in coming to communion and and remembering the cross, that Jesus Christ, only Jesus, bridged the gap between your awesome holiness and your thundering, glorious voice and our sinfulness and our shame and everything about us that separates us from you for, for all of eternity without the grace of Jesus Christ. Father, your voice is awesome. It is holy. It has spoken for generations. And Lord, this morning we're asking you through the preaching of your word to speak to us once again. Lord, not a new word, but the true word of, of the word of God, of the scriptures that really, truly has been unchanged since the dawn of time and is never going to pass away. And Father, that gives me such great comfort and relief because it means it's not up to me to impress anything on anyone's heart here this morning. It's simply up to you to use the foolishness of preaching to speak to our hearts in personal ways. Father, what I'm so encouraged about and we pray about this here often is we acknowledge the, the fact that no one in this room is here by accident. Whether we want to be here or not, we're here by divine appointment. And that means, Father, that what we're singing and what we're saying and what's about to be preached is part of a design you have for each one of us, a personal design to speak to us where we are, but then compel us forward to where you want us to be. Father, I thank you that for that reason, because you were in charge and you were Lord and your spirit's here, all the pressure's off. It's simply up to us to have open, quiet, humble hearts and listen. So, Father, I ask for your grace this morning. I ask for your help. And no, I'm not up to this task at all in any way. No one ever is. But our prayer is, speak, O Lord, through the truth of your word and the presence of your spirit, whom we invite even now to guide us in truth, to guard us from error, to deliver us from indifference, and to help us see Jesus. Lord, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we grapple with your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we study it together. And Father, in a little while, when we leave and go home and go back to our day and back to our week, Father, my prayer is always is that we'd leave rejoicing, not because we came to church, but because we sat with Jesus. And that we can say, though no audible voice was heard at the same time, we heard him speak. And we're better for it, and we're grateful because of it. Father, we thank you that you can do all this as more and more. We devote this time to you now in the precious, mighty, powerful, wonderful name of Jesus, to which together all of God's people say, amen and amen. You may be seated. As you're taking your seats, I'm going to ask the boys and girls to hold on for just a second before they leave for Children's Church. I would ask you if you have a Bible, because we're going to get to the Scriptures right after that. If you're not part of Children's Church, if you grab your Bible and begin making your way to the book of 2 Kings uh, but before we send the kids out, I want to borrow a few minutes from myself, from the sermon, 
and, and just say a couple, actually three specific things, which sort of are, I tried to tie them all together. I don't know if I'll do a very eloquent job of that or not, but there are three things I just want to mention apart from the sermon, but I think are really, really, at least on my heart, very important today and very important that I say to you. The first of which is simply to acknowledge y'all did something really nice for our family last Sunday, um, and most of you know what we are uh, talking about there and again, I, there's, just, there's just no way to say thank you. We've tried. I put something in the bulletin, and we put something on Facebook. And, and, um, but, you know, we, I, and I still don't know how to say just how grateful we are, not for a tangible gift as wonderful as that is, but what it represents, which is the heart of God's people caring for one another and showing really extravagant love. Earlier this summer, Maggie said it at the end of EBS. She said, we're not a perfect church, and we're not. We're far from it, but we are a church that loves well. And, and it was exciting and fun to be on the receiving end of that last Sunday. And so we do, again, say uh, thank you. What I also want to acknowledge, and Beth and I spent a lot of time talking about this week, is we feel like maybe we were a little underwhelming to you all last Sunday in our gratitude in the moment because we were so overwhelmed. I mean, literally speechless for multiple um, a minutes, and we got home and said, I hope nobody went home disappointed that we weren't more enthusiastic. But the truth is we were just so... Um, yeah, overwhelmed is still the best word we've come up with. But a couple hours later, we got our act together, and we managed to throw a little something. Some of you have seen it already, just to show you just how we did get to feeling it. I don't know if that's going to make it up there, Dan, or not. Um, but we went home, talked it over, and uh, yeah, that's how we felt later on. So um, yeah, that was really cool. But, but I want to say something else about that. And, and we can and we do thank you for the gift. But you gave us, that gift gave us the opportunity to do something the Bible tells us to do. Uh, that every, I think, Christian parent or parents desires to do. We're supposed to tell the next generation about the good things that God has done. And we had an opportunity just as a family. Not all of our kids, most of them were there to go to lunch last Sunday. And because of what you all did, we were able just in conversation to make God look really, really good. To talk about what the church is like when it's at its best. Uh, to talk about how God provides. And I was able to share with my kids uh, that this, not just the gift of a car, but that the gift we were given answered a couple of prayers that I just privately have been laying before the Lord for a long time. And to say, God, you, guys, you didn't know I was praying about this, but, but God did, and he used his people to answer. Not just the gift of a car, but some other things as well that I won't take the time to get into here. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes, for the gift, but more for the, the privilege of making our God look good to our children and, uh, and as a family, we're really, really grateful for that. So again, we say thank you. Again, if anybody thought we were underwhelmed last Sunday, we were not. Uh, it, was, it was a good day in lots of ways. So that's the first thing I want to say. Again, thank you so much. Second thing I want to say is, in re- in my, I guess maybe this is my way of returning to the thanks. I'm taking the next four Sundays off, okay? <laughs> um, and the reason for that is, is not that I'm actually going on vacation for four weeks, but, but as some of you may not know, every August, this church, the elders, deacons, uh, give me the opportunity to step away from the pulpit and invest that time, those 15, 20 hours a week that I normally spend preparing for this, uh, just to get near to the Lord, prepare for the, the new year ahead, the new ministry season, figure out where he wants us to go. I have a drawer in my desk that it's my August drawer. Just stuff goes in there till August. I'm about to open it up and I'm scared um, because there's so much in there, but it's an opportunity I have to sort of just pull back and, and get refreshed and refueled, and I'm looking forward to that. But I'm also looking forward, Greg has lined up four men uh, to stand in this place over the next four Sundays, so, so don't check out. You're, you're going to want to be here for what they have uh, to say, and, and just prepare for that so, so that you know what's coming. And then the last thing I want to say, and this isn't so much connected to what I've just said, but as you'll see as we get into the sermon, it's very much, it's very much God's timing. Is, um, and, and this was out on our Facebook page and on our email 
a prayer chain this week. Uh, but a couple of days ago, one of my predecessors here at Maranatha passed away, a man by the name of Ed Davis. And uh, many of you uh, were here for Ed Davis's years as pastor at Maranatha. I only met the man a couple of times. We probably spent a total of 20 minutes together uh, in, in our lives. But I know he was pivotal in many of your lives. Some of you as well never met him, but some of your lives are never, uh, never going to be the same because of Ed and Mary Lou and the investment that they made as a pastor and pastor's wife here. And so we need to pray for that family. Ed was, I think, in his 80s. Uh, this was not necessarily unexpected. Uh, but again, as, as God moves one generation to the next, we need to remember where we've been. And I would say to you that though I spent very little time with Ed, um, the work that he did in his seven or eight or nine years here made all the difference when I did show up as a 27-year-old who had no idea what I was doing because he had taught this church to love well. Again, just to go back to the theme, he and Mary Lou taught this church to love well. And I got to come in not knowing what I was doing, not knowing up from down, but into a church that loves well. And I have a lot of colleagues who are really jealous of that in, in, in the right kind of way. And, and so we need to remember and pray for that family and honor them um, in, in our, just our gratitude to the Lord. And, and I just wanted to say publicly how grateful I am to walk in the, the footsteps of a man like that uh, here and pray that I and that you, that we can continue that kind of a legacy of loving well. So I wanted to say that and, and just express those many uh, words of gratitude. Now, with that said, boys and girls, you can get out of here for Children's Church. So if you've got the five-year-olds up through second graders, they can make their way out for Children's Church. I hope that all of that gave you time to find your way in the Bible to Second Kings chapter 2, which I need to do here uh, as well with you. But this morning, uh, uh, in terms of God's Word, where we are is we are, if you're visiting, you may want to know this, in the final look at a summer-long series at the life and the ministry of God's servant, the prophet Elijah. We've seen his story so far. Today is the, the last glimpse that the Scriptures give us of him. It is in Second Kings chapter 2. That's where we're going to be reading from, not going to read the whole chapter because partway through, Elijah makes his very dramatic and glorious exit. But we want to read up to there the first 14 verses of 2 Kings chapter 2, where if you will follow along in your Bible, you'll find that this is what the scriptures say. It says, and it came about when the Lord was about to take up Elijah by a whirlwind to heaven, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, yes, I know. Be still. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho approached Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he answered, Yes, I know. Be still. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Now fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance, while the two of them, Elijah and Elisha, stood by the river Jordan. Elijah took his mantle, remember his mantle was his prophetic garment or cloak that symbolized him as having that role in the nation of Israel, his mantle, and he folded it together and struck the waters of the Jordan River, and they were divided here and there, so the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I'm taken from you. And Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. He said, you've asked a hard thing. 
Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. They were going along and talking. Behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. That would have been a sign of grief or mourning. And he took up the mantle of Elijah, that garment that fell from him, and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and struck the waters and said, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he struck the waters, they were divided again here and there. And Elijah, Elisha crossed over. In the spring of my sophomore year of high school, and I'll ask those of you who some of you have heard this story before to bear with me, but in the spring of my sophomore year in high school, I and three of my friends decided that that year, that spring, we were going to join the track team. Now, we did that not because we love track, because we, because I didn't, nor because I was fast, because I wasn't, but instead the four of us uh, joined the high school track team for one reason and one reason alone. The track coach was also the football coach, and we wanted to score as many points with him as possible before fall camp rolled around. The four of us were linemen on the football team. That meant we were big, dumb, and slow, and we were in, in so many ways, and, and yet we wanted to go out as a way to, to get in shape, to stay in shape, to, to impress the coach, whatever the case may be. But through that experience, one year of high school track, I learned two very important lessons. The first one was this, that my high school will let anyone join the track team, all right? Anyone. And the second lesson I learned, far more significant for the sport itself, was I learned and I was reminded of the incredible importance of handoffs, of the ability to hand the baton from one person to the next. Now, the specific context in which I learned both those lessons came one day early in the season when the coach approached the four of us, us four football guys who were not track stars in any way, and, and he told us something. He said, I'm going to take the four of you, and I'm making you, as of today, a 4 by 100 sprint relay team. Now, we were big guys. Again, big, slow. I asked my mom to look for a picture of us, but thank the Lord she couldn't find one, so I didn't put it up. But he said, I'm going to make you a 4 by 100 sprint relay team. I, I think he knew what we were really out there for, and it was his way of keeping us interested. It was probably his way of keeping himself amused to watch us run around the track. And, and we knew that, that he knew what he was dealing with, because after he told us we were going to be a 4 by 100 sprint relay team, he then told us that we were officially christened the Fat Man's Relay. That's what we were going to be going forward. So everybody knew exactly what we were dealing with. And the next week, he entered us into a race. We had a meet, a triangular. And he entered the four of us as the fourth team in a four-team JV sprint relay. Guess what? We finished third. Third, we were elated. We were thrilled. You'd have thought by the way we responded to finishing third in a four-team race that we had won the Olympic Games. We were so excited. And what made it extra sweet was the team that came in fourth was our high school's real JV sprint relay team. We be- and it felt so good. It felt so good. We were thrilled. They were humiliated. Our coach was angry with them, and he was overjoyed with us. In fact, he was so overjoyed with what we did, he he said immediately after that meeting, he said, from now on, we were the official JV sprint relay team. He said, you're going to be running the rest of the season. But the next week at the next meet, our vast inexperience caught up with us, and it did in a big way. 
Because as the race was unfolding and we were making our way around the track, I was the third man of, of the four of us on the relay. And, and as I was rounding that corner, heading to the anchor man, the anchor man who happened, by the way, to weigh in at about 240 pounds, uh, as I was going for him, he, he got antsy and left early. And I was running out of steam, and I was sort of coasting to the finish. And I realized the only way I'm going to make this handoff is to dive. They don't teach you to do that in track, but I decided in the moment that's what I was going to do. And so I dove. And while I did manage to get the baton successfully into his hand, and then he was able to steamroll to the finish, when I hit the track, I rolled out of the lane. And that earned our sprint relay team, the fat man's relay, our first, but not our only disqualification <laughs> of that track season. And, and of course, the lesson I learned through that really actually it was a fun experience was that in track and also in life, handoffs are everything. The way the baton is passed is everything. And that's not just true for slow high school sophomores. That's true for world-class Olympians. You can be the fastest runners in the world, but if you can't execute a handoff, your race is over. You're never going to win. And I share that with you because the same lesson goes here this morning in 2 Kings chapter 2, in our final look at the life and the ministry of the prophet Elijah. Because if you read this story before, you know that what gets all the press in these 14 verses is the chariot of fire that took Elijah to heaven, right? I mean, that's what everybody who's heard this story before remembers. But what I want to suggest to you this morning is that that's not really what this story is all about. That what this story, these 14 verses are really about are handoffs, spiritual handoffs, the transfer of spiritual power, leadership, and authority from one generation to the next, from one leadership team to the next. It's something that I think applies even within, as I was saying earlier, even in our own families. How do we pass the baton of faith and spiritual leadership and authority forward? This is a story about the transfer of power. And to see what I mean, the first thing we need to, to, to recognize in this story, and we're going to look at it quickly and then really dig in further, is to see, to acknowledge that what happened in this chapter between Elijah and Elisha, the first thing I want you to take note of, truly was a successful transfer. The first and most important thing, foundationally speaking, we need to see in this story is that the transfer of power, spiritually speaking, was successful. You know, if you look through this story closely, what you find in the first 10 verses, and maybe you notice this the first time through for yourself, is that it seems like everybody knows what's going on, what's about to happen, that this is Elijah, the prophet's last day on planet earth. Uh, the only real question that anybody has is what's next? Who's going to take over when he's gone? Uh, is Elisha really the man? And is, if he is, is, is he up to the task? Everybody's wondering and what's going to come next. And, and I get the sense as I read the story that it had everybody rattled. It says the, the sons of the prophets, and we'll talk more about them in a few minutes. The sons of the prophets were, were worried about this question. I think there's evidence that even Elisha himself was a little bit uncertain. Hey, what's going to happen once he's gone? But when verse 14 says, look at your Bible, we're going to start at the end and then go back to the beginning. When verse 14 says that he, after Elijah's dramatic chariot of fire departure, it says he, Elisha, took the mantle, that prophetic cloak of Elijah that fell from him, and when he struck the waters as Elijah before him had done and said, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah, what happened? Well, the waters, just like Elijah, were divided here and there, and Elijah crossed over. So what's the message? Well, the message is this, loud and clear. 
that Elisha was in fact, had in fact been anointed, appointed, energized, and equipped to be the prophetic voice of the next generation. He was God's man for what was ahead. He was to carry on in Elijah's place. My point is simply this. The succession was successful. The transfer of power worked. But here's what I'd say to you. That's the obvious part of the story. Anybody can read this a few times over and see that that's what happened. Here's the pivotal question, and I think actually the the practical question as well. Why? Why was it successful? What happened between these two men along the way that allowed when one was dramatically and instantaneously swept off the scene, the other one, the next one, ready to step in and move forward? Why was this a successful transfer? And the reason I say that's a very relevant question, a very practical question, is because handoffs happen in the body of Christ still today all the time. Generations come and go, right? People move on. God changes the situation. People come and go. Generations pass away. And while those spiritual, at least in the church, those handoffs don't necessarily happen in any given church every day, I think the message of this chapter is we better be ready for them when they do. That we need to be ready for them when they do, if they are going to be successful, if the work of God is going to continue and continue well. So what I want to do in the remainder of our time together is I want to direct your attention to four more things. And those four things are, in the, really in the first ten verses of this chapter, four essentials of a successful handoff. Four essentials to a successful spiritual handoff. And you say, well, I'm not an elder, a deacon, a ministry leader. That's okay. You're a believer. All right? You're a believer. Some of you are in positions of influence and authority. Many of you are parents and you have children you're trying to raise up to know and follow Jesus Christ. This applies to all of us. We all need to know and take hold of these four essentials. A couple of them are principles, a couple of them are actions, and without, with all of that as introduction, let's look at what they are first of all, number one. The first essential I believe this story shows us about what's necessary for a successful spiritual handoff is the conviction. you got to start with a conviction before you do anything, and it's this, that come what may, no matter what happens, God's work goes ever on. The work of God goes ever on. You know, I get, and this is just sort of a true confession, I get uh, simultaneously, oftentimes, um, both irritated and amused when I and presented with stories when I read things online that trumpet that herald uh, the fact that, that if somebody doesn't do something, the church in America is done, right? Or, or in our culture, or in our society, or in our world, if people don't step up and get in line and give some money and do what I say, listen, we are through as the body of Christ in this era. And the reason I am both irritated and amused by those stories is because while they generate clicks and they get people wound up, it's patently false patently false. And the reason I know that is, it don't even have to look in the scriptures to tell you, if the success of the church in America or any other culture were squarely and solely on our shoulders, the end of the church would not be imminent. It would have happened a long, long time ago because we're not that good. We don't have that power and ability in and of ourselves. Furthermore, the testimony of the scripture is clear. The workers change, but the work continues. The people change, but the power of God endures. Say this first point with me. God's work goes ever on. Now, admittedly, whether it goes on well or poorly depends on how we prepare for it. Are we getting ready, realizing that, that, that we're not the unique, we're not the exception, that 
that what happened, has happened in the past is going to happen again to us and in the future. How do we prepare for it? But that's what the rest of this sermon's all about. But again, just walk yourself in your mind's eye through the scriptures. Think, when Moses died, Joshua stepped up. When David died, Solomon took over. When Paul was martyred, Timothy was ready to go. Goodness, see, even Jesus Christ left the scene, right? And, and things went on. You've read the book of Acts. Things went on okay after that, right? The people change, but the power endures. The work of God goes ever on. And the same thing happens here between Elijah and Elisha when they pass the baton here in 2 Kings chapter 2. And I beg you to remember that really this theme has been the central message of really the the entire story of Elijah from, from start to finish. What's been the constant message or question? Who's really running the show? God is. Both his hands are still on the wheel. He is firmly seated forever on his throne. God's work goes ever on and nothing can Stop it. And so that's why when in in verse 3 and again in verse 5, the sons of the prophets, those are schools of of, of prophets that met together. Maybe a a contemporary equivalent would be like a seminary or a Bible college where men are being trained and equipped uh, to do the work of the Lord in their generation. It says the sons, verse 3, of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elijah. And we can imagine them wringing their hands and, you know, short of breath. Do you know the Lord's going to take away your master from over you today? What's Elisha say? God's got it. Be still. Yes, I know. Be still. And when the second school of prophets does the same thing in verse 5, his answer is the same. Yes, I know. Be still. Because the first essential of a successful spiritual handoff is knowing and understanding, as Elisha did here, God's work goes ever on. It always has and it always will. Begin with that conviction. Second, move from conviction or principle to an action or the beginning of an action, is this. If we are interested at all in our church, in the church, in our families, wherever else, of the successful transfer of spiritual authority and leadership and the continuance of God's work in the next generation, we need to secondly understand and believe with all our hearts that every believer has something to offer. Every single one. Every believer has something to offer. You know, the first time you read through the first 10 verses of this story, it's not exactly clear, and it took me several times reading through it to see it for myself. It's not exactly clear what Elijah is up to on this sort of roundabout journey that starts at Gilgal, and it goes to Bethel, and then he's down to Jericho, and then he's across the Jordan River. It's not clear exactly what he's doing at first glance, but when you dig into the story a little deeper, and you match it up with some other places of Scripture uh, from, the, from the same or a similar era, what you, you realize is that, that each of these places that Elijah visited, it, it looks like all on his final day here on earth, because they keep saying, do you know that today he's he's going away. Each of those places he visited, there was, it says, a school of prophets. It means a gathering of of men, again, who were being prepared or maybe had been prepared to be probably the contemporary equivalent of preachers and teachers of the Word of God, uh, the salt and light for their generation. And a lot of people think these schools had been established by Elijah. And then, in fact, uh, in the portion of his story we don't see in the Scripture, maybe that's what he was doing, training and equipping and guiding these men to carry on and multiply the work he had been called to do. So, assuming that's the case, and I believe it was, assuming that's what these schools of prophets were all about, what I think Elijah is doing in these visits, again, in verse 3, to the sons of the prophets at Bethel, 
Verse 5, it says, to the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho. Verse 7, 50 men of the sons of the prophets who met he and Elisha down by the Jordan River. What I think Elijah was doing on those three visits was returning to those schools to provide those in them with a gift that was greater than any gift he'd ever given them before. Any lesson he'd ever taught, any message he'd ever given them, any training they'd ever received. Because my guess is that here, at the end of his life and ministry, he was giving them the one thing he had left to offer and the one thing he had more of than anything else. And you know what that was? Wisdom. Wisdom. As we age, we don't always have the energy or the, maybe the, the agility or, or whatever else it is as we move closer to the end of our life than the beginning. But the one thing we accumulate if we're paying attention is wisdom. The wisdom of God. And so what I think Elijah is doing is he is sharing with on these final visits, in some way or another, the wisdom he had acquired through a lifetime's worth of, of seeking the Lord and following the Lord and serving the Lord. And guess what? Even failing the Lord, which he did, we've seen, on at least a couple of occasions. And he's taking those lessons and those messages. Why? So that the next generation could thrive when he was gone. They wouldn't miss a beat. In fact, they'd be better off for it. I believe he was equipping them with wisdom as Pastor David Roper says in talking about this, this very thing, he notes that in, in Elisha particularly, and, and maybe we didn't realize this, but what he was doing was, quote, helping to shape the young man whom God intended to use for the next 50 years. 50 years. He's just making deposits in the bank of Elisha's heart and life and ministry. Listen, I get, because I hear it all the time, and I, I believe it, that in order... For the church, our church, any church to thrive in the future, it has to look to the next generation now. You can't wait until it's too late to prepare for the handoff if we're going to equip those coming after us to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ forward. And in fact, uh, you may not know this, but even among our elders right now, we're having serious times of prayer and discussion about what that looks like here in our church family. But here's the question. Who's supposed to do it? Who's supposed to do the equipping? Are we supposed to hand books and here, figure it out? Listen to this and hopefully something sticks. No, the equippers are supposed to be the older generation, right? I mean, this is not complicated. We just need to remember it. The older generation who have literally been there and done that, right, already. They have seen so much of what the church and life in Christ is already about. And I believe with all my heart that if that's the season of life you are in or entering into, then like Elijah, your best gift is the one you still have to give to the next generation, Here's how I've seen God work. Here's what I learned through my failures. Here's what I learned through hard times. Here's what I learned when God blesses. But it is up to the older generation to equip the younger. And I'm saying that's the gift you have most in abundance if that's the season of life you're in. And, and in, in return, the best gift the younger generation has to offer back, you know what it is? Their attention. Your attention. To look to those who are further down the path with a humble teachable spirit, realizing there really are people in this room who've seen and know more than, than you, than we do. They really do. And they know, and they can help. I don't know if you remember where back in the end of 1 Kings, where it was where Elijah first met Elisha. Elisha was plowing a team of oxen. It says he was 12th out of 12 teams. That means he was at the back of the line, sucking everybody else's dirt. But when Elijah came along and found him, it was instant. He, I'm ready to go. 
My heart is ready to do. Teach me. Lead me. Elijah was ready to to pour in. Elisha was ready to receive and follow God's call. And that's another essential factor of a successful spiritual handoff. The principle, number one, God's work goes ever on. The reality, number two, believing that every believer has something to offer. And frankly, we're expected to offer it. Third, and this is really just a a sort of a sharpening of the spear of, 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 of the principle or the truth of point number two, just digging or drilling it a little bit deeper, which is this. The third essential of a successful spiritual handoff is the importance of getting close to those who are closer to the Lord than you are. Get close to those who are close to the Lord. You know, one of the real unexplained, at least on the surface, curiosities of this story, and I kind of smile as I read through it, is why it looks like Elijah keeps trying to ditch Elisha on this journey, right? It, it, it sort of looks like he's the kid brother. He doesn't want him to come along. He's like, you can stay here if you want to, right? Three times over, he tries to get rid of him, or at least that's what it looks like. Verse 2, Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord sent me to Bethel. Verse 4, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. Verse 6, stay here, please, God has sent me to the Jordan. Stay here. I'm not clear why he says that. I happen to think that's not so much a command or an insistence as it is an invitation. Hey, listen, if you don't want to follow me where I'm going, if maybe what we're about to experience is more than you're ready to bear, I I think it was probably more just studying their relationship, what it was like, but I don't know. Whatever the case was, though, whether it was a command or simply an invitation, it's clear in those same three verses, Elisha wasn't having it. He wasn't buying it because look at what it says, how he responds, what he insists in those same three verses. Verse 2, Elisha said, as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Verse 4, as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came together to Jericho. Verse 6, as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on to the river Jordan. Why did Elisha do that? I don't know. Maybe he'd read Proverbs 13.20, which says, he who walks with the wise will himself become wise. Write that down. Proverbs 13.20, he who walks with the wise will himself become wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. Listen, I, he thought, I, I need to be where this guy is and soak up everything I can get. You know, I've heard it said in a variety of ways, and some of you have shared it with me, and I, and I know many of you have heard it too, that, that all of us as followers of Jesus Christ need at least three kinds of people in our life. There's just one way to look at the Christian life. We all need three kinds of people, and borrowing from, uh, from imagery from the New Testament, they are as follows. Each one of us, man, woman, and child, needs a Paul, a Timothy, and a Barnabas. Did you know that? Say, so what does that mean? It means we all need a Paul. And, and, and if you're a man, these need to be men. And if you're a woman, these need to be women. It's just, it works better that way, trust me. Everybody needs a Paul. What's a Paul? Somebody who's farther down the path than you are, who's been a little further, knows a little more, seen a little bit that you haven't, who knows the Lord and can pour into you. We all need somebody like that in our life, a specific person. But we all also, secondly, we need a Timothy, somebody that we can turn around and do the same thing for because the best lessons are the ones that we learn for ourselves and then share with others. We need a Timothy to pour into. And you know what we also need, and this is often left off, a Barnabas, a friend. A godly friend who's more or less where you are. Barnabas's name meant son of encouragement. Do you need an encourager in your life? I do. Somebody who walks shoulder to shoulder with. 
who's there with you to encourage you. In your now, I don't know which of those three roles is more important, Paul, Timothy, or Barnabas, but I do know which one you've got to find first. Paul. Or at least you have to know who your Paul is first. Because if you don't have a Paul, you've got nothing to give Timothy. And maybe not even that much to give Barnabas. You need someone who is pouring into your life as a believer. In other words, I'm saying we should all follow Elisha's example here. As the Lord lives and you live, man, I am with you. You've got stuff to show me. You've got stuff to teach me. You've got lessons I can learn from you about Jesus and following. We should all follow this example and get close to people who are close to the Lord. We need to find somebody like that in your life if you don't have them. And that's not just for successful handoffs. That's if you're interested at all in moving toward maturity in Jesus Christ. At all. We've got to have it. So here's my charge to you. If you don't have one, find one. Ask somebody. Be, like, be relentless like Elisha. As the Lord lives, I'm not leaving you alone till you help me. Right? And sometimes that's what it takes. But find someone. And it doesn't have to be a pastor, an elder, a deacon, or a Sunday school teacher. It needs to hear. Let me give you the qualifications for your Paul so you know what you're looking for, okay? Again, ladies for a woman, uh, guys for a man. I think there are three fundamental qualities of a Paul in your life, of an Elijah in your life. Number one, they have to have an an evident love for Jesus Christ. Clear, evident love that the love of Christ has changed them. Second, they have to have a clear and evident commitment to the local church. I believe that with all my heart. Don't follow a lone ranger. They have a humility problem. Someone who's committed to the body of Christ because God established it for his purposes. Evident love for the, church, uh, for, for the Lord. Evident commitment to the church. And then thirdly, they just need to be somebody who's a little farther down the path than you are. Who's seen and done a bit more. Someone you respect enough to say, as Elisha said here, as, again, as you live and as the Lord lives, man, I'm sticking with you. You've got some stuff to show me. It's an essential for successful spiritual handoffs. Then there's one more thing and we're done. Right here in this story, if our handoffs are to be successful, number one, God's work goes ever on. you got to know it because it's true. Number two, every believer has something to offer. None of us are called to sit on the sidelines and watch. Number three, the way it happens is to get close to those who are closer to the Lord than we are. And then number four, and I believe this is equally important with all the others, we've got to learn to ask great things of our great God. Start asking our great God for great things. Why can I say that? That's exactly what Elisha did here in this story. You know, in, in Old Testament times, there was a custom. And the custom was this, that when a man died, his inheritance, which was primarily land, that's how wealth was measured in those days, his inheritance was to be divided equally among his surviving sons, except one exception. The oldest son got twice as much as everybody else. Now, you may or may not like that. I'm the oldest of four. I think it's a fantastic rule. That's just great. <laughs> but that was the rule. The oldest son got a double portion for whatever reason that we can talk about some other time. And I say that to you because here, that's what's going on. Since Elisha viewed Elijah as his spiritual father, he had a physical father. We were shown who he was in, in, at the end of 1 Kings. But Elijah was his spiritual father. It was in that vein that in verse 9, when Elijah said to Elisha, what should I do for you before I'm taken from you? Here's Elisha's request. Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. If you're my spiritual father, I'm your spiritual son. I want what, what, what biological sons get from their father. 
want twice as much. Now listen, he's not saying, make me twice as popular as you. Make me twice as famous. Make my crowds twice as big. Uh, make my miracles twice as d- dynamic. He's simply saying in, in a roundabout way, man, I want what I want. I want God to be glorified in my life at least as much, if not more, than he has been in yours. I want people to see God's glory in my story. I don't want half as much. I want twice as much. That's a great request. Now, Elijah in verse 10 calls it a hard thing. The reason it was a hard thing is because it wasn't his to give. Only God could answer that request. But didn't verses 11 through 14 reveal the answer? God honored it. God answered it. And and he answered it, I think, right from the start, very, very clearly. Now, the interesting thing, just this is sort of free for what it's worth, is that as you read on in 2 Kings, you find something interesting, that the Bible records Elisha doing exactly twice as many miracles as Elijah. And it tells exactly twice as many stories about Elisha as it did Elijah. Just sort of interesting, but, but that's not what matters most, and that's not what made this a great request. What made it great was how it revealed, unveiled Elisha's passion to say, I want God to be glorified in my generation. I want to be glorified in my life. In my circle of influence, I want the glory of God to shine in my story. And I believe that his example beckons us to do the same, to pray the same way. Lord, be glorified in my life and in my story. You know, most of what we accomplish in our lives for Christ doesn't happen on a platform like this, and it never makes it on the news. Most of what God accomplishes never does. It's happened in ordinary days, in ordinary ways ordinary relationships. That's where most of God's great work gets done. But the point of this story is that if our hearts are in line with Elisha's, if we can say, Lord, be glorified in me. I want you to be glorified in me, in my story, in my life. I'll make you a promise. God's going to get, do some great things in your life. God's going to do some extraordinary things. And now you may not see them until you get to heaven, but you're going to see them. And they're going to happen. Because that's the way God works. What is he looking for? He's looking for an open heart in which and through which he can work. And, and along the way, we'll help ensure some successful handoffs. You know, all throughout this series, again, it's on the screen one more time, I have called Elijah a zealot. And one last time, I want to affirm for you, you're probably tired of hearing me say it, that, it, that, that he was not a zealot because he had some secret spiritual magic powers that we don't. And it's not because he was a hairy man with a leather belt, as we saw in last week's story. No, what made him a zealot throughout his life and ministry, as as unexotic as it sounds, is that this, and this is something you and I can do, he was willing to answer when God called, he was willing to go where God sent, he was willing to say what God said, and here may be the most important thing of all, let God worry about the outcome. Not try to manage it, but let God handle the outcome. He was willing to say over and again, God, have your way with me. And through it all, remember, James 5.17 says he was a man just like us. Just like us. No different. Listen, I don't know if every generation of the church has a prophet in it like Elijah. Some would say yes, some would say no. I'd say I'm not sure. But I do know this. Every generation of the church needs prophetic voices. 
Every generation needs prophetic voices. I mean men and women and young people too who will take the mantle, the spiritual mantle from their predecessors, from their older brothers and sisters in the faith and then relying solely on God's spirit and God's word do what both Elijah and Elisha did here. Proclaim in word and deed how great our God is and his son, the gospel of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a great God And he's also a wonderful, merciful Savior. People who would do that in the times in which they live to the people with whom they come into contact will do that thing. Because here's the big idea of this last look at the life and ministry of Elijah, and it's this, and I believe it with all my heart. Every believer can become an Elijah. Every believer can become an Elijah. All of us can be zealots in the best sense of the world, because all of us have stories in which God's glory can shine. Father, I thank you that that's so. Not because I say so, but because your word shows it. That what you're looking for are humble and contrite hearts, teachable spirits, people who are available. Father, Elijah was available. Elisha was available. David was available. Timothy was available. And you took hold of them, and they took hold of you. And Father, the world, each of their worlds, our world has never been the same. Father, I don't know what you want to do in each of our lives, but I know that you intend to do great things through humble hearts and yielded spirits. Father, would you not just make a few of us like Elijah in that way, but you'd make all of us like Elijah in that way. Prophetic voices to our generation proclaiming the greatness of God and the gospel of Jesus relying wholly on your spirit and your word to do so. Father, as always, take the things of truth spoken this morning and seal them in our hearts. Let all the rest slip away so that we leave fixed on Jesus alone. In whose name we pray, amen.